1 Corinthians 6, 1 to 11. Let me just read this passage. If any of you has a dispute with another, dare he take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, appoint as judges even men of little account in the church. I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother goes to law against another, and this in front of unbelievers. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you've been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. We do live in a, speaking of lawsuits in this passage, we do live in a very litigious society, a society where people sue one another for all kinds of things. It used to be my dad can beat up your dad, and now it's my dad is going to sue your dad, and my dad's lawyer is better than your dad's lawyer. Um, If you don't like how an election turned out, you sue. If you don't like the new policy at school and Johnny and what it does for him or little Susie, you go into the principal and you say, I may have to get a lawyer. Uh, If you don't like what your neighbor is building next door to you, well then go get a court injunction. Uh, if If you're making decisions or new policies in a business or a church or a nonprofit organization today, one of the basic questions you have to ask is, what is our legal exposure in this situation. It's just a kind of common thing we have to ask. Now, I want to be clear at the outset here. uh, I'm not making uh, a a case this morning against the courts or or against lawsuits per se. God has given us the law and he's given us government uh, to protect us and to restrain evil. Nor is this kind of a big wind-up for a bunch of lawyer jokes. We're not doing lawyer jokes this morning. Thank God for people who devote themselves to that profession for for the good of others. Um, But what I am saying is, I wonder if we've kind of reached a place in our society where we don't know how to do civil discourse and disagreement very well, and and rather than sort of lawsuit being the kind of final option, it's sort of the first threat to try to get our way and, and position ourselves and leverage a particular situation. So we don't just know how to work things out. We don't know how to talk. We don't know how to, have di- how to have civil discourse with people with whom we disagree. And that's very problematic when it starts to come into the church. And that appears to be what was happening back in those days in Corinth. 
Uh, there appears to have been lawsuits taking place back then. Here's Paul, the apostle, writing to this church in Corinth, a very blessed church in many ways, but also a very broken church, a very divided church. I've called this church in Corinth a blessed mess. Uh, and, and part of what was messy in that church was that there were disagreements among the Christians, factions, infighting, that appears in cha- here in chapter 6 to have even spilled out of the church into the courts where Christians were suing other Christians. And that seems to be what Paul is primarily disagreeing with. If you look down at verse 6, he says, Instead, one brother goes to law against another, and this in front of unbelievers. So Paul is reacting to the fact that Christians are suing Christians. This is not saying that, that, again, courts are bad or that Christians should never use the courts or sue each other, but this problem where Christians are at odds with each other and they sort it out by going to the courts, Paul says, no, 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 we can't do that as Christians. Why not? Well, he gives three reasons. Reason number one is in verse one. He says it doesn't make any sense for people who don't know God to be judging the people who do know God in his word. Look at verse one. If any of you has a dispute with another, dare he take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the saints? Why would you go to people who don't know Jesus and don't live by his word to settle disputes you're having among Christians who both know Jesus and are trying to live by his word? It just doesn't make sense to do that. A second reason, it's a bad witness for the gospel. Look at verse 6. Instead, one brother goes to law against another, and this in front of unbelievers. People are watching these Christians battle with each other. You know, as Christians, we're trying to preach the gospel. We're trying to tell people that Jesus came to earth and died on a cross to reconcile those who were at odds that Jesus died to reconcile human beings to God, to forgive our sins so we could be put together with God. And as a result of that, people can be reconciled, Jew and Gentile, slave and free. All the different people types are reconciled together. So if we're preaching a message of reconciliation, but we're going out into public in the courts, letting the courts figure out how to reconcile us, it's undercutting the witness that we have as Christians. So it doesn't make sense to have, as he says in verse 1, the ungodly judge the saints. Number two, it's a very bad witness. And then number three, you're a family. Look at verse 6. But instead, one brother goes to law against another. Verse 8, you do this to your brothers. You know, Paul is very intentionally hammering on that word, brother, brother, you know, family member, brothers and sisters in Christ. And you know things have fallen apart in a family. You know the wheels have come off the bus in a family when family members are suing each other. That's how you know family unity has all collapsed. And so here's Paul saying, your family, you shouldn't do that. And so Paul is, is telling them that believers should not be suing believers. They should not be what probably what we would call today a civil suit whether it's matters of property or money or agreements, they shouldn't be sorting that out in the courts in front of the world. Okay, Paul, then what should we do? Because there will be fights. There, there will be disagreements. You know, if, if we're going to really take seriously this call to be a church family, and, and we don't just want to be kind of you know, consumers who move in and out of a church program, but we really want to be a family of God together, that's wonderful. There's a problem. We're going to step on each other's toes. 
there are going to be conflicts. I mean, you think about all the people in this church, all the members of this church. Think about all the different personality types. You know? Think about all the different approaches everyone has here to money. You know, some of you are very conservative. Some of you are like, ah, it's just money, you know? Think about all the different approaches you have to problem solving. It's like a marriage except with like 500 people, like all trying to like do life together as a community and and we're gonna have different opinions and views and personalities. And then you put on top of that the fact that we're all still struggling against sin and and we're going to hurt each other. We're gonna sin against each other, not not if, but when, you know? And and so to be in a church family is to be in a, a situation where you are going to come in contact with other people who are very different, who see, view, think, reason differently, and who are also struggling against sin. So it's a matter of time before Christians are going to sin against Christians. It's a matter of time even before Christians might sin against Christians in a way that would normally be litigated in a, in a kind of civil suit. Those kinds of things will happen at some point. And so it happens there in Corinth. So what should we do then, Paul, if we're not supposed to go to court to sort it out, what's the answer? And it appears that Paul gives a two-part answer to that question, a two-part solution to Christians suing Christians. Part one is what I'm gonna call a practical solution. In other words, he's gonna deal with the, the practical matter of how you go about sorting out the dispute. But then part two, which begins down in verse seven, is what I'm gonna call the heart solution. So, so he, he has a practical solution he wants to give us. Okay, instead of going to court, do this instead. But he doesn't want to stop there. He wants to get down into our hearts. What is it that's driving all of this lawsuit business, you Christians? And, and he wants to get underneath the hood of our soul and deal with where our attitudes are toward others. And he wants to take the gospel and kind of push it down into our souls so, so that he gets to the root of the issue, not just solving the kind of process, practical issue of how to deal with this. So let's look at each of those in turn. First, the practical solution to Christians suing other Christians. And you find that in verses one to six, the practical solution. And in short, the practical solution is judge in the church. Instead of going to the courts, just set up a court inside the church and deal with it that way. Seriously, just do that. Verse one, if any of you has a dispute with another, dare he take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the saints? So rather than taking a civil issue with another Christian before the world, take it to the other Christians. You think, well, what? We're not qualified to do that. Well, verse two, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Did you know that? Did you know that the last day when Jesus returns and the world is judged before him, there'll be the Father and the Son on their throne and then there'll be this long bench and on either side will be seated all the Christians. You know, you look out here at this church you see the other Christians here, you're looking at part of the eschatological Supreme Court that will give the final ruling at the end of the age upon the world. Christians will judge the world. Not because we're anything or, or that we are better, but because we've been saved in Christ and we're going to share in Christ. And that means sharing everything in Christ. Sharing in his kingdom and his authority. 
So Paul says you're going to judge the world. I was uh, heard in the news this week, um, apparently in North Korea, uh, maybe like a week and a half ago, there's reports that 80, 80 Christians were uh, executed in North Korea. Um, they were gunned down by firing squads. And the reason they were killed is because they, they were found to own Bibles. And if you own a Bible in North Korea, that that's a, could carry the death penalty. Another thing that often happens is people are, are then taken uh, and for down to the third generation are sent as a group to these prison camps from which people tend not to come back. You think about what was being done there and, and the uh, persecution against those Christians. But here's the good news. Those 80 Christians who were gunned down will judge the world. They will sit on thrones and they'll be vindicated on that last day. So here's Paul's logic. He goes from the greater to the lesser. Verse 2. If you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? I mean, really? Just anyone, anyone in the church, just deal with it. I mean, come on, you're going to judge the world. You can handle this. He says in verse 3, do you not know that we will judge angels? Did you know that? I don't know if I knew that. I assume he's talking fallen angels here, but who knows? We're going to judge angels. Verse 4, therefore, uh, how much more than the things of this life? So again, the argument from the greater to the lesser. If this is the eschatological Supreme Court part of it sitting here, then certainly you can judge trivial cases among yourselves. Verse 4, therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, appoint even as judges men of little account in the church. I say this to shame you. Just pick anyone. Go down the membership list, close your eyes. You know, pick someone. doesn't matter. You're going to judge the world. Really, use your brothers and sisters to help you sort these problems out. Is it possible, he says in verse 5, that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? Like, really, there's no one in the church who's wise and godly and smart and trustworthy that, that could sort this out. You know, I was, I was thinking about that, and I was thinking about our church, and I was like, are there wise enough people here who could sort out a, a kind of civil dispute between people? I was like, yeah, man, our church has a lot of people like that. I mean, one of the gifts I think this church has is some really deep wells of wisdom and godliness, some men and women who've walked with the Lord for many years who are faithful and fair-minded, and but there's a lot of people who could do this in our congregation. Yeah, we could sort it out this way. Why not? Why not go that direction? And so Paul's serious. He says, do it. it, it this seems strange to us probably, uh, and could, could churches really do this kind of a thing? Uh, and a part, in part, I think, seems strange to us because this isn't how we tend to think of local churches, as having this much authority from God, as being this important. Uh, you know, like I said last Sunday, instead of thinking of the church as a, a family, we often think of the church as sort of a spiritual Walmart where you go to get certain things, needs met. In a similar kind of way, we don't think of the church as the, uh, a gathering of some of the end-time judges who will judge the world. And so we don't attribute as much authority and trust and respect to the local church. Uh, but that's not the biblical vision. You know, I would say that one of the, uh, in my opinion, one of the glaring theological deficiencies of American Protestant evangelicalism 
is a very anemic view of the local church. You know, it's like me, Jesus, my Bible, maybe my Bible study, I'm all set. And we have a very privatized, individualistic view of our Christianity. But dude, open your Bible. What does it talk about all the time? The church. About Christians being in community with each other. Yeah, Jesus saves you personally, but he saves you into a family and into a kingdom and into a gathering of saints so that the whole of Christianity is conceived of as lived out in community with other brothers and sisters who have a measure of authority and accountability. You know, it's, it's your brothers and sisters. And, you know, just to be clear, I'm, I'm not saying this to try to, like, garner power. I'm not sort of running for, you know, local pope or anything like that. When I say the church, I mean you. The authority of the body of Christ that we have over one another. And I'm just one part of that body. But you as a church, you, you are the members of this church. Christ has entrusted a measure of authority and accountability to you over each other. And so why don't we access that as a way of sorting through differences when we really come to loggerheads? And, you know, to, it just happens, right? One person sees things one way. One person sees things another way. They talk. They just don't know what to do. They feel stuck. And our typical reaction in those circumstances is what? Run away. I don't want any part of this. Too much drama in church. I'm out. Or people get all you know, tough and they start using power and threats and things to try to get what they want. But is there something in between? And it seems that Paul is suggesting that right here. Could this really work in a church? Let me tell you a little story about something that happened to me several years ago. I've told this story, I think, once before here, but it, it bears repeating in light of this context because this very thing happened to me. Uh, I had two guys uh, call me up for an appointment. They came in. One was a member of our church. One was a Christian who was a member of another church. And uh, we, we, we sat down. And so I'm like, oh, so hi. What, what's going on? And basically, it was, it was a situation where one of the guys owned a property. And he let the other guy stay in the property. I forget if it was like rent-free or super cheap or something like that. But with the understanding that the other guy would do certain work on the property. And so some time had passed, and the first guy felt like the other guy didn't do enough work. And the other guy said, yeah, I did work. What's the big deal? And so, so they, were, they were having a disagreement over that. So it was kind of like they had a, a civil suit, a, a property disagreement. There were no papers. There was no documents. This was all just two Christians trying to operate in good faith together. But they came to a disagreement about that. So anyway, they're telling me this whole story. And at some point in the conversation, I was like, whoa, 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 time out. Why are you telling me this? Like, what do you expect me to do? Like, make a decision here for you? And th- they both looked at me totally serious and were like, yeah, that's why we're here. And I was like, I'm like wait a minute, wait a minute. So like, if you tell me this case and I ask you questions and then I render a verdict, like, you'll abide by what I say? And they were like, yeah. I was like, you know, suddenly becoming drunk with power. I was like, wow. <laughs> the court, Judge Judy is in session, you know. So, so anyway, we spent like about two hours, and they each told me their story, and I would ask questions. I'm like, what about this? And I'm just kind of using my common sense and just trying to track down things. And so after about two hours, they, they all shared their story. And, 
you know, a, a, an idea started forming in my head. And so I said, okay, this is where I think things are right. I think it's like this and like this. And so I think you need to do this, and I think you need to do that. And, and I just kind of gave a verdict. And they said, okay. And it kind of settled it. I mean, I don't know if they were each 100% happy with the verdict. And, and I don't know if they're like best friends after that. I mean, maybe they, but, but they, they were able to put it behind them and move on and just kind of get past a problem by just submitting to somebody else and, and the verdict that they gave. So, you know, uh, uh, law offices of Jeremy Rennie are open in case uh, anyone here is needing something sorted out or maybe someone else, actually, preferably somebody else. Having gone through that myself, it's, it's intense. It's kind of scary. But wow, could we not do this in the church more often? Uh, even, if, even if you read this chapter six and you're like, look, I'm not a lawsuit person. I would never sue anyone. I'm just not the kind of person. Chapter six must not apply to me then. No, 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 no. We still have disagreements. We still come to, to loggerheads about things. And could it be that there are times when what we actually need is somebody to arbitrate and to render a binding decision as opposed to just therapy or talk or conversation. But sometimes things get so stuck, maybe, maybe that would help. And why not the body of Christ? Why not your brothers and sisters? Couldn't we handle that that way? Is it possible that it would work? <clears throat> just to be clear, I want to make this clear. I want to make a caveat here. Again, I'm not saying that it's wrong for Christians ever to go to court for any reason, nor am I saying Christians should not be a part of the legal system or legal professions. There's no commentary like that. Praise God for brothers and sisters who are trying to shine the light of Christ in that part of our world. Um, uh, nor am I saying, and I want to be clear about this too, nor am I saying that this is how we should handle criminal issues. You know, there's a difference between a civil issue and a criminal issue. If, if, if there was, and I, I hate to even say this, but God forbid, if there was an accusation of abuse in our church, step one isn't form a church court. Step one is call the police, right? B because a criminal matter really is a, is a case, it's a situation between the state and a person. It's not between two individuals. And, and so th there are limits to this. God has not given the power of the sword and the power of government to churches, but he's given a spiritual authority to churches. And so we need to exercise the spiritual authority he's given. And, and when things start moving beyond the spiritual authority, that's what the state is for. That's what God has given authority to the state. But okay, all that being said, all those caveats in place, perhaps we could sort things out for one another. And so if you're stuck and you can't get past someone and you know, you're at that weird phase where you you just, there's this weird, awkward, quiet, and you see that person at church, and so you kind of pretend to be looking at the bulletin board till they walk by, and then you can keep walking, that kind of stuff. Maybe, maybe you should both sit down and say, we need to work this out. And maybe you both agree on one, two, or three people that you both trust and respect and do this. Who knows? Maybe it could help. God's word seems to, to suggest and say that this is how we should handle these kinds of situations. But Paul doesn't stop there. He wants to go deeper. He not only proposes a practical solution, a practical answer, which is judgments within the body of Christ, 
He, he wants to go down into the heart, down into the basement. Uh, he wants to go under the hood and, and address a heart solution. Because underneath it, there's a deeper problem. It's the heart. Underneath it, there's a deeper problem. It's the attitude. And if you don't da- get down to the attitude, there's going to be recurring conflicts in the church. You know, a parent uh, has two kids, and the kids are screaming and fighting, and you did this to me. Well, you did that first. And the parent comes in, and it's like, what's going on? You, know, hey, you stop doing that. You, you stop doing that. And stop it. You know, and walks out. And, and you've, you've solved the problem, but you haven't really solved the problem. Because now you just have two kids who are like, and they're still mad. And, and they're still, you know, distrusting each other. It's just a matter of time before those, those two hearts come back together in a collision and more different issues. And you've got to come back in, you stop that, you stop that. So somehow you have to, and this is a hard thing as a parent, speak to the heart of the child and try to shepherd and preach the gospel to a child's heart and not just change behaviors through rules and arbitration and family litigation, but speak to the heart. And specifically, the thing that we have to speak to the heart as Christians is the gospel. It's that Christ was crucified for us and buried and raised again. And that gospel is not just what we believe to get to heaven someday. That gospel should shape our attitudes and our hearts and, and how we relate to each other in real life day in, day out. You know, as it's often been said, the gospel is not just the ABCs of Christianity. The gospel is the A to Z of Christianity. It's the whole thing. It's how we live and function. It's our, our MO as Christians is to be gospel-shaped people. And so Paul wants to apply that gospel to these different factions. He wants to apply the gospel to the heart, the deeper level. And so he does it. First he applies the gospel to the plaintiff, and then he applies the gospel to the defendant. He first applies the gospel to the person who feels wronged, and then he applies the gospel to the person who's doing the wronging. Now, of course, in every conflict, we all believe we're the person who was wronged. And we believe the other person is doing the wronging, and they believe the same thing. So it's great that Paul addressed both, because we probably are both. In any conflict, it's rare that, some, that it's 100%, 0%. And so we're going to need both sides of what he's speaking to the heart here, because we need to hear both sides of this. So let's look at the first part, which is, what the gospel has to say to the heart of the plaintiff in one of these disputes. What does the gospel have to say to the heart of the person who feels like they're getting trampled on and getting the raw deal? Have you ever felt like you've been trampled on and gotten the raw deal and that someone's taking advantage of you or harming you even in the body of Christ? Well, what should we do? Go to court? Verse seven, the very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you've been completely defeated already. People go to court to try to win. Paul's like, if you're going with another Christian, you're already lost. Why not rather, get this, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Wouldn't you rather be wronged and cheated than go to court? You're not buying that, are you? <laughs> well, I don't know. Rather be, what does he mean? Why would I rather be wronged or cheated? That doesn't make any sense. No, I wouldn't rather be cheated. I want my rights. No, no, wouldn't you rather be wronged and cheated? Why? Because at the center of our religion is a Savior who was wronged and cheated. 
and my whole salvation, my whole hope of eternal life, all the things we so happily sang about before the sermon are all because he was wronged and cheated for us and by us for our salvation. That the center of Christianity is Jesus Christ who was crucified and and mistreated and unjustly executed and he did it. He gave up those rights and he took on the cross so that we could be saved. You know, if you're, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian and you're trying to kind of get your head around, like what is, what's the heart of this Christianity thing, you know? And you're, you're trying to figure out, is it the building? Is it, the, is it this or is it that? And, you, you know, I, had some, I was talking to someone this morning and they were like, you know, so why, why is it in some churches you have a cross with Jesus depicted on the cross and other churches you have a cross without Jesus on the cross and is that it and there's so many things to try to figure out like what's all the different okay let's make it simple what's the heart of Christianity it's that Jesus Christ came died for our sins and rose again that's the heart it's like boom 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 and that's that message of Jesus dying for our sins and rising again, all of the Old Testament, it's like blood flowing into the heart. It all flows from the Old Testament into that. And out of that message of Jesus dying and rising again, all the blood of life of the new covenant and salvation is flowing out of that. That's what the gospel is. We, we come to Jesus like blood depleted of oxygen, flowing into the heart, flowing into Christ, saying, I'm a sinner, I need to be saved. And, and then we get pushed out of the heart to the rest of the body and, and, and we're new life a new creation in Christ. And so at the heart of Christianity and the heart of the gospel is Jesus who died for us, who gave up his rights, who was willingly wronged and mistreated for the salvation of others. That's at the heart. You take the heart out of Christianity and the same thing happens as if you take the heart out of a person. It's just dead. There's no life without the gospel. So, why not be wronged? Because we worship a Savior who, who was wronged. That's at the heart of, of what we believe. Why not rather yield my rights to another Christian? You know, that, that, that was part of what happened in that arbitration I did um, where, I, where I rendered that ver- verdict. <laughs> Still kind of seems strange to me. But, um, but, but you know, the, the one guy, I, I, I sort of felt like, after I heard all the evidence, that the guy who owned the property didn't get the work that he deserved. And so I was like, you know, I don't think you got the work you deserve. I do think you deserve more work. And so that's, that, that's sort of where I ended up was like, this guy owes the other guy more work. But, but then I said to the guy, I go, but I want to challenge you with something else. I said, I want to challenge you right now to just cancel his debt and let it go. I said, for the sake of your heart, do what Christ did for you. Cancel the debt and just let it go. Now, you don't have to, but I'm like, why not? And I said, you'll be free. Then you'll be free. Because otherwise you'll still be like, oh, is he doing enough? And the guy thought about it, and he took a deep breath, and he, he did this big exhale, like, oh. and he's like, okay, I'm letting it go. He just let his rights be trampled on because he wanted to follow that model for Christ. He didn't have to, and it was beautiful, and he was free. you know. And then if the other guy did some more for him, well, great, that's just icing on the cake. Uh, why not? That's a theme, by the way. I, I just want you to kind of mentally bookmark this idea of rights because this theme of rights is going to start coming hot 
and fast through the rest of 1 Corinthians. This was a big issue, was people standing for their rights. And Paul's like, no, 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 no. We want to stand for the gospel. We want people to be saved. And if that means to communicate the gospel clearly that I give up some of my rights, then that's well worth it. Because my hope isn't that I get all my rights in this life. My hope is that Christ will make all things right. And so the believer is free to be like Jesus because we know we will end like Jesus. We're free to take up our cross because we know that we will reign with him. And so if you're going to reign with him, well then who cares about a few rights in this life? This isn't what I'm holding on to in this life. It's the life to come in Christ. So that's the word to the plaintiff. Is let it go. Don't be afraid to be wrong for the sake of the gospel. There's some of you here who, some of us here, probably all of us in some way or another, who need to let go of something and be like Christ and just say, Father, forgive them and not be bound up with resentment and bitterness and hostility. You know, if, if that's where you are, man, the devil has you. You don't even know it. He's got you in bitterness. So forgive and be free of that. But there's also a word for the defendant, okay? Paul isn't just gonna say, okay, all you people who are upset about things, let it go. And then all the people who've done the wrong things are like, hooray, you know, easy targets. No, 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 no. He's got a word for the defendants too. Now, as I said before, none of us ever believe we are the defendant. We all believe we've been wronged. None of us ever believes we've done the wronging. It's hard for us to get there. You know, or, or if we do believe it, we always go like this. You know, I made some mistakes, but let me tell you, they're mistakes. <laughs> you, know, you know, I haven't been perfect. I know that. But let me tell you how they haven't been perfect. 15 reasons. <laughs> you know, and, and so we, we kind of just generalize over our faults and we're quick to <laughs> say what everyone else has done wrong, aren't we? And so what Paul does here in the second part where he speaks to the heart of the defendant is, is he really has to come on strong. He's got to hit really hard because for us to admit that we have a fault and a problem is hard for us to do. We don't do it. We self-justify and self-rationalize. So Paul hits really hard in verse nine to try to wake us up. He says, do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Boom, he's trying to shake us up here. Don't you know that, that if your life is marked by wickedness, if, if you're mistreating each other in the church and you're one of the per people who's mistreating the other person, then, and, and that's your MO, don't you know you won't inherit the kingdom of God? Don't you know that? Don't be deceived. Don't think, well, you know, I was confirmed or baptized or, you know, I went to VBS or I prayed a prayer to receive Jesus. And so, you know, I'm all set. No, 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 no. If your life is marked by wickedness, then you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. It's the evidence of your salvation. And then he has to hit even harder in verse 9 and verse 10. He, starts, he has to tick off actual marks of wickedness to again shake up his hearers and make them question whether or not they're really following Jesus. He's trying to get them to see their own faults. He's speaking the gospel to the hearts of the defendants by showing them the kinds of sin that Christ died for. And so he says in verse nine, neither, and he lists 10 types, kind of like the 10 commandments, sort of modeled on that a little bit. Neither the sexually immoral, those who, who are engaged in sex outside of marriage. Idolaters, people who worship idols, people who are 
you know, superstitious, astrology, all that stuff. Pagan worship practices. Adulterers. Uh, male prostitutes nor homosexual offenders. That's a bad translation there. It, it's essentially, without getting too graphic, the, the two partners in a homosexual uh, intercourse. Nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers. He's like, if your life is marked by this, if this is sort of the pattern and your MO in life, don't be thinking that you're going to inherit the kingdom of God. And so you can't just keep abusing each other and misusing each other in the church and just thinking, well, I'm fine because I'm a Christian. No, defendants. You've got to repent of these things too. So he's speaking to the heart. And then after delivering that body slam to our soul, in verse 11, he turns a corner and suddenly the gospel shines into the hearts of the defendants. And he says, that is what some of you were. Past tense. That's what you were. Some of you were that. But something happened. You came to Jesus. And look, look what happened to you. Verse 11, you were one, washed. Two, sanctified. Three, justified. You were washed. All your filthy life and all the things that were just dirty you've been involved in, all the dirty things you've thought and said and the way you've treated others, Jesus has washed you clean. Christ has washed you. And then he says, you were sanctified. What does that mean? And I get washed. What's sanctified? Sanctified means to be set apart as special and holy for God. So God has taken us off the trash heap. We're damaged goods. We're in the gutter, and God takes us off. He washes us, and he puts us on the mantle over his fireplace. He puts us right on his desk. You know, it, it puts us in a little frame on his desk, and people are like, who's that? That's my son. That's my daughter. They're mine now. Are you sure? I knew that guy growing up. He was, he was a drunkard and sexually immoral and a swindler and a thief. That was a bad person. I know, I know, but, he, but he's been washed. He's been sanctified. This is my person now. This is my son. Careful what you say. That's my child now you're talking about. I've sanctified them. I've set them apart into a special relationship with me. And then, of course, you were justified. Don't you love justified? Justified is courtroom language. It means not guilty. That's what justified means. It means the judge declares that you are a just person and a right person before the law, which of course is amazing since we're not. And you say, is this a miscarriage of justice? No, no, no. Again, Jesus took my punishment for my crimes and he forgave me and washed me. And so now God looks at me and rather than saying, Jeremy, guilty, which is what I deserve to hear, he says, not guilty because Christ has taken my place. So I'm justified. I don't have to face that judgment day. When the judgment day comes, I'm going to be with God, not on the other side of it. Amazing, amazing. And you know, ultimately, that's the only court that really matters, isn't it? It's not the Supreme Court of the United States. We're all so worried about that. That's not the final court. It's not any local court. It's not any church court. The only court that ultimately matters is the court on the last day when God judges the world. And the real question we have to ask is, how do we hear the not guilty on that day? 
anyone can say anything they want you in this world, but if God will say to you on the last day, not guilty, nothing else really matters now that much, does it? To hear him say, not guilty, and this is my beloved son, and I've washed him, how is that possible? It's in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Jesus Christ died so that we could be forgiven. That's what it means to be a Christian, is to be a person who walks in that kind of forgiveness and grace. And so Paul says to the, the plaintiff, you know, let it go, man. Be trampled on. Your Savior was. And then he says to the defendant, hey, you've been washed, so stop behaving that way. You're forgiven. Live like the forgiven holy person that you've become. And let us love each other. And so if you don't have Christ, I just want to encourage you to lay hold of Jesus Christ, to put your faith in him, to, to believe in the Savior, to stop trusting in your own efforts to have a good rap sheet. It's not gonna work. You need the Savior who can wash you and sanctify you and justify you. Put your faith in him. And if you are a Christian, if you do believe in Christ and you're clinging to him, then brothers and sisters, let's live it. Let's live the gospel. Let's not just be something that we sing about. Let it be something that we live in how we treat others and treat one another so that the world might see us and might say, what is going on in there? We've got to find out more. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came for us and that you didn't just come to settle some bickering disputes between us, Lord, but that you came to do a deep work of cleansing, sanctification, and justification in our hearts. And God, we just pray that you would cause us to, to ingest and imbibe the gospel deeply. Lord, help us not just to be shallow, immature Christians who believe Jesus died for us, but it makes no difference in our lives. Help us to be gospel-shaped people who, who've had the gospel get deep under the hood of our hearts and rewire the whole way that we think and act and treat each other. Oh Lord, help us to have real Christian maturity, which is to be gospel-shaped people. Lord, I pray for those of us here who've been hurt and wounded, that, that we would find the ability to release the wrongs done to us, not because what was done to us is not a big deal, but because Jesus is the judge and he's our savior. And Lord, help us to, to confess our sins and to own things that we've done and not paper over it and to find that anyone who turns to you can be washed and sanctified and justified. Oh Lord, may this shape our church in profound ways, we pray in Christ's name, amen.